I've written out these directions. Read them carefully, so there won't be any mistake. Darling, that's me. Mm. July 1st, 5 o'clock, Honored second floor, top of the Empire State Building. Yes. That's it right there. It's the tallest building in the world. You can't miss that. The nearest thing to heaven we have in New York. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Dog. And this week, we are still in the 1939 nominees, though not to the movies yet that everyone is waiting for. And we watched Love Affair, starring Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer. And and it was... I, my feelings on this movie are all over the place, because it depends on what scene we are in. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And sort of the end result of that is like, I kind of can't uh, care. <laughs> I mean, once you just accept how wild it is that apparently... Everyone on Earth is in love with this unemployed French painter to the point where just like the news is covering him. Yeah, that was my question. Number one in this movie is why if he's never had a job in his life, which we learned about three quarters of the way through. Maybe it's not that much. It's like halfway through the movie. What does he do that anyone cares about him that the news covers him front page apparently he's just the greatest flirt on the planet earth because like the other thing about this is that like because of the code he's kind of he's cheating but they're not married yet he's cheating on his fiance and not his wife but then also they don't really do anything they kiss yeah that's all that we see. And there's not even the implication of other stuff. Like in a lot of movies that we've watched that are code movies, they have like, you know, the curtain flapping in the breeze or whatever. And you're like, oh, yeah, they had sex. And I don't get that impression from their time together before everything goes wild. Yeah. Yeah. So the first act is, I would say, like, emotionally it's fairly well drawn but the details of this world are just utterly bizarre yes of these two people falling in love and then the second act i guess is the like six months they spend apart figuring out if he can build a life instead of marrying rich so that he can marry her and then them planning to meet up and her getting hit by a car just outside the empire state building so they can't meet up And then the full last act of this movie is her insane plan to never tell him. Yeah, why she didn't show up and the fact that she can't walk, but it's not even permanent? Right, she won't know for six months, and so she doesn't want to tell him, so that question mark? And then everyone in the world seems to think that this is the smartest plan. Anyone, all the doctors are like, good girl, she's got a good head on her shoulders. And it's like, does she? That's insane! Yeah, oh my god! She's in the hospital, and it's, I think, like, a day or two after she got hit. So it's very early still. And her ex-fiance is the person they have called. I guess he's still her emergency contact. 
Right. I had questions about why he was there. Yeah. That was like, I guess that's it. It's not ever addressed directly in the film, but the doctor asks him, are you the guy that she kept talking about when she was under anesthesia? Which is another question I have because like, what were they anesthetizing her with while she was in surgery that she was talking But he said, no, that's this other guy that she was on her way to marry, and she doesn't want him to know until she knows if she can walk or not. And the doctor says, that's being sensible. And I thought, in what universe is it like, oh, hey, yeah, I'm just gonna let him think that I stood him up rather than risking the embarrassment of not being able to like i didn't understand what the problem was i think the idea is if she can never walk again she would be a burden to him and doesn't want him to get attached to her if that is the case but also she doesn't want to just be like i can never be with him because she might be able to walk in six months it's insane it doesn't make any sense but that's the logic i gifted the movie so that the rest of the movie could happen and the thing like I could totally understand if there was this feeling that she had of I'm gonna be a burden and whatever and if the other people around her were like I get that you feel that way but maybe you should let him know because I'm sure he's worried about you or like no no don't think that way but instead everyone's like oh yeah no that makes sense right and that is because if anyone brought up that this was a terrible plan instantly you would see what a terrible plan it is the third act of the movie then doesn't exist right so much of this movie is the misunderstanding about why she didn't show up which she actively has to abed for the entire last third of the film just so there can be a reason they don't get together at the 40 minute mark or he's revealed to be a total asshole because he's like oh yeah no you're right you wouldn't be a burden bye right which obviously he wouldn't be so The first act, let's go through this act by act, because you really have outlined the plot, because that is the plot. Yeah. So now we're, like, getting into the details of where this movie becomes really confusing. So they meet on a cruise ship, because apparently in the 1930s, like, that was the place to randomly meet up with someone and hook up with them. And the first scene that we see with him, there's these, like, 20-ish, maybe not even year old girls who are like, sign our picture! Because, again, he's wildly famous for question mark. It seems like he is wildly famous for having a lot of affairs. Right. He's very attractive. Also, Terry, our female lead, doesn't seem to have any clue who he fucking is. Like, the moment she enters the picture, he is no longer famous to anyone anywhere on Earth. But, like, the introduction is four different radio hosts in four different countries losing their mind that Michael Marnay is coming to America and finally getting married. Which is weird. So, they meet sort of by chance because he drops a letter that he had written to his fiance's best friend saying like oh we had a really nice time near lake como but it will never work out between us or whatever i think it's a cable from her oh okay but either way which she knows because she says you know is this from your fiance or whatever and he says no her best friend yeah and then they start having dinner together and they fall in love i guess but the details of that are very, very vague. And there doesn't seem to be any real reason why they have fallen in love. 
Like, they didn't have some connection based on something they never felt with anyone before, and no one had ever understood this about them. You know, their conversations are extremely surface level until it's the last night on the ship, and they're like, what are we going to do with our great love that we have for one another? They keep going like, we can't do this, and then going, well, let's just do it anyway, four or five times, which is like, honestly, as a way to fill time in this movie is significantly better than other ways it picks. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> but it does lead to undermining this sense that theirs is a grand romance, because you do really watch them go like, eh, maybe forget the whole thing. Well, I mean, where are we going to sit at dinner? <laughs> right. Okay, let's keep going. And then, like, she meets his grandma and is like, she's rad, which, to be fair, she is rad. They stop in Madeira, because I guess they're going from England to the US, and for some reason they need to stop in Portugal on the way there. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, come and meet my grandmother who lives in Portugal, because my grandfather was a diplomat, and he died here, so she decided to stay. And this, again, was one of those situations where I was like, why is this movie making this so vague? Because he says, oh, here's my friend Terry. And immediately she's like, oh, she's so charming and I like her so much. Like they've literally just been introduced and that's the first thing that she says about her. Honestly, though, the grandma sells it better than Charles Boyer. Boyer. My mom actually just corrected me on the phone when I was Boyer. talking to her. I was like, yeah, sir, I read Dunn and Charles Boyer. She was like, Boyer, he's French. Okay. And I was like. Yeah, well, I didn't correct you 10 minutes ago when you said aubergine incorrectly, so whatever. Anyway, the point is... My mom is not the best at French. Honestly could give a shit about how to correctly pronounce the last name. I believe your mom, but I could give a shit because he doesn't really impress me that much in this movie. He's fine, but like I say, the grandma does a much better job of selling the idea of just being head over the heels in love with Terry than our male lead does. Yeah. She is instantly locked into what makes this girl great and how great she is for her grandson and is really going for it in a way that he is always like trying to be charmingly aloof and just looks bored as a result. Yeah, and disinterested. I don't know how much to blame him because that's a stated character trait of his that's supposed to come back and haunt him and never does. <laughs> that he is like easily bored if success doesn't come to him instantly. He just drops it even if he's wildly talented at the thing. We are shown that repeatedly. He does go to an art dealer and the art dealer is like, I would be happy to take your art and display it and try and sell it. And he's like, but you can't give me a million dollars right now? Well, fuck it. I have to go wander into the street and find a job. That is such a wild level of success to have as a painter. Yes. But then there's no consequences for that. It's a strange character trait to make your main character have because it just makes him bored by the movie that he is in. Yep. Anyway, the grandma is great and they have some really nice times on their day in Madeira. I mean, generally, actually, there's some really clever editing and cinematography in this movie that I think sell the romance a lot harder than the script does. I love his introduction scene. The fact that it is completely like... At odds with the whole movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, that's the problem is that like his introduction, the lead up that everyone losing their fucking minds in every nation on earth 
And then, like, there's a cable, and everyone on the entire boat is, like, following the guy trying to find him around so they can see Michael Marnay. And he just, like, walks down a staircase and is fine. He looks nice in that tux, but, like... But who doesn't look nice in a well-tailored tux? Right. You could put a beaver in a well-tailored tux, and they would look amazing. And, like, from the introduction, you expect it to be, like, a Voltron of Cary Grants. Like, five Cary Grants (laughs) socketed together to form a super Cary Grant. And it's, like, just some guy. Um, He's fine. He's fine. Michelle Barnet is totally acceptable. Yeah. There's a scene that they have in the grandmother's little chapel in her, like, villa that she lives in, in Madeira. And the light is, like, very sort of, like, saintly on Terry. And it's, oh, yeah, okay, she's, like, his ethereal Madonna. And I'm like, yeah, okay, the cinematography is filling in for me what the rest of the film is not giving me. And I can't say I'm okay with that, because I like for the writing to make any damn sense. At least there is something that is leading me that way. (laughs) That's the thing, is there's individual scenes that work. I think on every level, that is true. Just like there are scenes where the cinematography is like, oh, this is really good. I really like the final reveal scene, the way he figures it out, that conversation they have. I don't know why I had to wait 40 minutes for that. Her plan makes no sense. Like everything around that scene kind of sucks. But the like scene itself, they both sell really well and do interesting stuff in that final scene. Interesting scenes keep popping up in this movie. And then like just long, boring stretches of plot to fill it out to still not a very long movie. Still not even an hour and a half. I think also their last scene on the boat, so after they leave Madeira and they have this whole, what are we going to do? Because obviously we're so in love with one another and it's night and there's all this fog and like, it's very, very sad and very atmospheric. And I think it's actually quite good. And then they say, okay, well, we're going to meet at the top of the Empire State Building in six months. And if we're both there, then it means that we think we can make it work. And then... The next scene is that morning when they arrive in New York City and they're getting off of the ship single file. So one of them is behind the other. And the heiress that Michelle Marnay is engaged to tackles him and calls him Michael, which no one else in the movie does. And I was like, wow, why are you going to marry someone who won't even say your name correctly? And Terry is like, Oh, sorry, excuse me, I I need to get off the stairs. And then she, like, walks around and then is immediately tackled by her fiancé. And then Michelle has to do the, like, oh, sorry, sorry, we just need to, we just need to get by. That scene is actually really cleverly done. This is a movie of a lot of little moments. And then the actual movie is kind of a disaster. I see why it got critical acclaim, because there are moments that are like, oh, that was genuinely very good. There was a lot of thought put into those 30 seconds. (laughs) Right. And then it just never adds up to anything. This movie really made me think about the fact that maybe I should stop referring to characters from 30s movies as Baxters, because, like, they're this distinct thing because they're all the nicest guys on the face of the earth. (laughs) They don't really have that 90s Baxter thing where, like... When the chocolate milkshake falls on their head, you're like, yeah, finally, stick it to him. (laughs) Her 
ex-fiance is so rooting for her to get back together with Michelle for the full last third of the movie. He's really, really lovely. I kind of got to give him credit because in a way that seems actually sort of recognizably human, it isn't just that thing where it's like, sure, take my wife. I don't even care. Have a good day. You're the best man I ever met. He does seem to sell. He wants her back. He is in love with her, but also- If she's not in love with him, he wants her to be happy. Yeah, and she's having a real bad year, so the fact that, like, he's having a bad year, too, kind of, like, doesn't really endure into it. And her year is obviously, like, a little bit worse. Yeah, for sure. That whole thing, that grandma dying, like, there's all these moments where it's just, like, these interesting characters are kind of given short shrift or have to do something super weird- Because the sort of plot of this thing is so rote and honestly bored with itself, it feels like. They definitely knew what the important dots were going to be in the plot. And they were like, oh, God, now we got to string them together. Because the whole six month period that they are apart while they're waiting to meet on top of the Empire State Building, she breaks up with Kenneth. And she goes to live in a boarding house. And there's a really funny scene where the head of the boarding house comes in and is like, don't marry a loafer. You need to marry a rich man, which would be her ex-fiance. But then talks about how happy she was, except that she wasn't then because the guy left her with a bunch of kids. And she's really funny. And then we never see her again. Right. That has no bearing on her decision to do anything. Right. She isn't shaken from her faith in Michelle or anything. It has no influence whatsoever. Then Michelle goes and tries to sell his art and the dealer is like, well, I guess we could show your stuff, but, you know, I can't just give you money immediately. And then he goes and becomes a billboard sign painter and they show on the screen, it says that it's February. And I was like, bullshit that anybody is painting billboards in february in new york city because they would die yeah and then his art dealer comes and says we sold it and he says oh what did we sell he says oh you know the woman and then does the like hourglass outline with his hands and all these people gather around and are like oh my gosh you sold a woman (laughs) which really it's a portrait obviously yeah and like that's clever and funny That misunderstanding that, no, actually, he's not a pimp. (laughs) And then the art dealer leaves and the guy he's working with is like, oh, so what's the big deal? And Michelle is like, I'm a painter. And the guy says, yeah, me too. (laughs) Because they're obviously painting a sign. He says, yeah, me too, but I'm not happy about it. (laughs) (laughs) And like, that's all that I remember, actually, from a six month stretch that they're apart. I mean, there's not much to it. She like gets a nightclub job in Philadelphia singing because her b-plot for the last two-thirds of the film is suddenly at the grandma's house she kind of like mumbles to herself while the grandma plays the piano and then the entire rest of her plot is like i guess i'll make a career as a singer well she had been a singer before she got engaged to kenneth oh i missed that yeah okay because to me it was like totally out of nowhere with at the piano but okay that's better at least both of them are like immediately successful (laughs) during the six-month stretch which also is like then why bother She immediately finds success as a singer. He has to wait a whole month before his paintings start selling to be a professional painter. She not only is immediately successful as a singer, she is halfway through the song when the guy at the nightclub is like, you're hired and I want to give you a long contract. And she's like, six months? And he says, six months isn't a long time. And her response is, oh, yes, it is. 
which was like one of the few examples of really clever dialogue in this movie. And it's kind of undercut by the fact that five minutes later, it is July 1st and the six months are up. Right. She comes back and has this scene at the dress shop, which is how her fiance knows she's back in town. Because the women at the dress shop, I guess, thought she was going to like try and scam her way to- Put it on his charge. Yeah. But presume that before ever asking if she is going to do that because she has her own money and is just going to pay with her own money. But yeah, so they call her ex-fiance and he says, hold her there. I'm going to be right down. But she insists on paying for the dress. And then she walks out and he's like, how are you? How are you doing? We should get lunch or whatever. And she says, no, I can't right now because I'm busy. You should just just call me. Actually, no, you can't do that either because I'm going to get married. And then jumps in a cab to go to the Empire State Building. And then gets hit by a car off screen as we pan upward to the top of the Empire State Building and watch Michelle wait for her until an incredibly on-the-nose thunderstorm starts up out of nowhere. Then we have the wild scene we talked about where she comes up with this terrible plan not to tell him what's going on. Yes. Suddenly Michelle is famous again and everyone is losing their minds that this, like, billboard painter is going (laughs) back to Europe. Where he discovers that his grandmother has died. Yeah. Like, no one sent him a letter? Yeah, it's weird. And then he comes back again. They meet each other at the theater and she manages to not have to stand up in the exchange so he still hasn't figured it out and both of them are there with their exes yes his ex-fiance calls up and is like michael it's christmas come hang out which is also wild that this rich heiress has apparently had nothing better to do for a full year after getting dumped yeah like why (laughs) why is he the greatest man on earth in this universe it's very strange yeah we don't have any basis for that at all Anyway, then he goes away, and also Terry has decided that she is going to teach music at an orphanage. Right, so that we can have cute kids singing. Right. It's another subplot where, like, there's good moments in there, there's good actors, uh, but it just never comes to anything. It's not like orphan kids are instrumental in helping him figure it out or like that they get back together because of the orphans. It's just like the orphans come in and sing and are cute and then go away. And there's a completely unrelated ending. Then he shows up at her apartment or house. I mean, I guess she lives at the orphanage. It seemed like she was recuperating out back of this orphanage and was singing with the kids sometimes. And then the superintendent was like, would you like a job? Because they all hate me. Yeah. And then again, they're both wildly successful with almost no effort. After the grandma is specifically like, I worry about the fall that he's going to have someday. Life won't be that easy for him. And it's like, life wasn't that easy for him because his fiance gets hit by a car. (laughs) That seems like life picked wrong. (laughs) Life missed. Yeah. But anyway, he comes to see her to go effectively, like, why the hell didn't you show? But he does that by going, I want to apologize because I didn't show. To get her to admit that she didn't. And that scene actually is really affecting. Yeah. Even though I haven't believed very much in their whole love for one another, it still works. Yeah. That's really like the first time that I believe it. For sure. It is the first time their romance actually does seem to be based in anything. Because she immediately catches on to what he's doing, and he kind of immediately catches on that she has caught on. Right. And they both start talking through this metaphorical, hypothetical universe where he was the one who didn't show, and why, and what she did 
quote unquote, when he wasn't there. That is transparently him kind of pouring his heart out about how heartbroken he was. And it's very good. And then there's this weird moment that happens a little bit before this where his art dealer is like, this is the only painting we have left. And he says, well, I don't want to sell it. I'm okay with parting with it, but I don't feel like I can take money for it. And it's a painting of her. It's a painting of Terry. Then he, in the final scene, just out of nowhere, brings up the painting. The weird thing is... In retrospect, he had all the information he needed to figure it out before he ever went there, and she does not give him any information when he goes to see her that lets him figure it out. He just figures it out on his own with information he previously had. His art dealer had a woman come in who was so taken by the painting, and she was poor. In a wheelchair. And in a wheelchair. He doesn't say in a wheelchair. Him going in a wheelchair is when he figures out that he hasn't seen her stand. Then he starts rooting around her apartment to find the painting and finds it and is immediately like, I genuinely could not give less of a shit whether you will ever walk again, which is like, I know, right? Why did she come up with this terrible plan? Yeah. And the two of them embrace and the end of film. Well, the two of them embrace and she says, it doesn't have to be a miracle. If you can paint, I can walk. Anything can happen, don't you think? And I'm like, those things are not comparable. You suffered a traumatic injury. Oh, yeah. And like, he picked up a paintbrush. I think at this point, because I think I've gone on the record before to say that I hate misunderstanding plots. Oh, yeah. You have. And and specifically the kind where people, if they just talk to each other, like there would be no movie. (laughs) Right. And like the last half of this film is literally if these two people would just have a fucking conversation. And and so I think I was just so happy they had a conversation and the movie was going to end that the fact that you are correct, the last line of the movie is garbage. Yeah. Did not even occur to me. I was just like, yeah, hooray, painting, like your spine magically healing. It's all one and the same. Let's go. Uh, so that's that's that movie. Yeah, I don't even know that there's like, we talked about all the specifics. I mean, uh. Charles Boyer, I will say, in this movie, for a, a lot of it until that final scene, is so Pepe Le Pew that I honestly didn't realize he was actually French, because he was such a caricature of the, like, French lover. It does seem like every single take was like, great, Charles, great, great, great. But could you slow it down and do it Frencher? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Apparently, now that I think about it, that must be it. That, like, the thing that is supposed to make him the most magnetic man in the history of the world is that he's French. I mean... Because that's the only thing the movie presents about him. I actually went and looked up, was Pepe Le Pew based on his character in Love Affair? Mm-hmm. Uh, and no. Oh, no. But it is widely believed that Pepe Le Pew is based on Maurice Chevalier, which also works. Oh, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and explains why I always hated Pepe Le Pew. Yeah, but I think you're supposed to a little bit hate Pepe Le Pew because he's like, uh, he doesn't get the head. That feels like it is a thing that over time that became the character's bit more and more, you know? But like at first it was just, the bit was that it would work except he's a skunk. Right. And then eventually they were like, oh, also he is a toxic men's rights activist <laughs> who must be destroyed. Yeah. Or like, uh, he's a, he's, 
what is it that they call like the oh he's a pickup artist right not like an mra not that there's not a lot of overlap but like specifically a pickup artist. what if they rebooted pepe le pew and like had him wear one of those pieces of flare hats (laughs) right and like he started going by mystery like the like (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that's amazing uh yeah so um so rating this movie i'm gonna have a really hard time with because i don't remember what movie it was that you rated tilt yeah i (laughs) but like that's kind of how i feel because like as a movie it's not very good but then there are these moments of like actual brilliance like things that really stuck with me but they're so small and they're so far apart yeah i'm i am tempted to for that reason give it a 5 because i agree that the process of watching this film is like watching a richter scale readout <laughs> Of like that, just like it is just constantly vacillating wildly. No way to predict what the next moment will bring. But like the the base is like it's okay. It's not great. Right, right. It's not hard to watch, but a lot of what drives your attention forward in this movie, or at least for me, did is well. I have no idea what the fuck is going to happen next. And a lot of times what happens next is not really even that interesting. Because usually when you have that feeling of like, the plot is totally up for grabs at this point because it makes no sense. The next thing that happens is like wildly interesting and is a huge twist or whatever. Yeah. And that wasn't the case here. It was just like, this movie's beats don't make any sense. Right. So I have no idea what comes next. I mean, it's a 15 minute short film when you're talking about their actual plot. Yeah. And so as a result, the reason you don't know what will happen next is it's like, what way will they fill time before they have a conversation next? It could be literally anything in the world. Characters we already know, characters we've never seen before in our goddamn lives. It could be anything. Yeah, it actually could be. Uh, so yeah, I feel like that's a solid old school screen test of time five of like, when it's great, it's great. And when it's not great, it's really not great. Yeah. Instead of a more traditional five of like, the movie is generally average. Yeah. Should you watch this movie? I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, an affair to remember is right there. Like, why would you watch this movie when they made literally the same movie with the same director and almost the same- But with Cary Grant. But with Cary Grant. They got it right this time. (laughs) I have never seen An Affair to Remember, except for, you know, the clips of An Affair to Remember that everyone has seen. Right. But, like, I cannot imagine you're not better off watching An Affair to Remember. I can't either. I don't know if it was actually nominated for Best Picture, but- who cares? Yeah, what is it? 57? We can find this out before too long. I feel like probably not, though, because by 57, they were only doing five movies a year. Yeah, no. And like, that's a good year, like 12 Angry Men. Oh, and wow. Yeah. 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 I mean, I feel like we could probably get rid of Sayonara. Um, but yeah. Yeah, 57 was a great year. They didn't need to bring back in a remake to pad it out. Yeah. So next week... We are still not into the big ones for 1939. It is really a backloaded year. It it is just insane once we hit. Once we get to Goodbye Mr. Chips. Yeah. But we have Dark Victory, which has a great poster of Betty Davis, and I am very afraid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
it is a really good picture. And it's also, I mean, I know enough about it to know that it is another movie where having a disability is somehow makes you, like, unlovable, like this movie posits. Or at least one character in it does, and everybody else is like, yeah, that seems, that seems legit. And, uh, and I have a problem with that. I have another problem with this film, which is Ronald Reagan is in it. Yeah. This is... Yeah. But so is Humphrey Bogart. So, like, do they cancel each other out? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I guess we will find out. I mean, my, my suspicion would have been they can't be in a film together because just like matter and antimatter, they would explode. Yeah. But apparently that is not that, the case. No, apparently not. But uh, yeah, so find out next week if Humphrey Bogart's amazingness can neutralize the horrible, horrible existence of Ronald Reagan. Until then... Uh, this was a series of really nice 30-second vignettes. And some not-so-nice ones. Strung together with an hour and 15 minutes of other movie. Bye. Goodbye, everybody. Why didn't you tell me to? If anything had to happen to one of us, why did it have to be you? Don't look at me like that. It wasn't anybody's fault but my own. I was looking up at the 102nd floor. It was the nearest thing to heaven. <laughs> <laughs>